0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 15th. As always, I'm talking to you from the fair city of San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Uh, Three themes have been coming up. Uh, all too often, for better or worse, in our show over the last few weeks and months, uh, the first issue is of images. Um, done a number of shows on images, on the pol- the politics of images. We had Connor Town O'Neill on the show. Images in the American South, in particular, uh, the image of a notorious uh, Klansman, uh, Nathan. Bedford Forest, the, the politics of images. Uh, the second theme, uh, a, a, and of course, we've looked at it from the other way. Uh, we had uh, Jennifer Higgy on the show, written a wonderful book on w- female self-representation. So the the good and the bad of images, the politics of images. Secondly, we've had lots and lots of shows on Rome. We had Ed Watts, a distinguished classicist on the, the dangers of Thinking of ourselves perpetually um, in the rhetoric of decline and the decline of the Roman Empire, uh, and thirdly, we've talked about power a lot. How power is changing. How we need to represent power. We had the uh, the, the 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 Harvard professor Julie uh, Batilana, the French the the um, the French thinker on how to, if you like, democratize power. So images. Power and Rome, and I'm thrilled today that they all come together in a wonderful new book by one of the world's leading classicists and thinkers both on images, power, and of course, Rome, Uh, Mary Beard. She has a new book out, 12 Caesars, Uh, and I'm thrilled, honored that she's talking to us from her home in uh, Cambridge, uh, UK. Uh, Mary, uh, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Uh, the, the subtitle of your new book, Twelve Caesars, is the images of power from the ancient world to the modern. Mm-hmm. Mary, what exactly is an image of power?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that was one thing I struggled with when I was writing the book. Um, but but I, I I honed in on images of Roman emperors because because it seemed to me that that figure of the... Uh, the leader of the Roman Empire, you know, dressed in his toga or his battle dress, um, put up in public. Still very much on delay, the I- images of power that we see around us today. We still, in a sense, we kind of go back to how the Romans saw themselves. And I, I explore that not just in relation to the ancient world, but in relation to all those guys, you know, who for centuries after, right up to today, um, see themselves and have themselves represented um, as Roman emperors or in the model of Roman emperors. Uh,
0: you talk, uh, one of the things, uh, one of the, the chapters in the book deals with the the bust of Julius Caesar that was discovered, I think, in 2009, um, my God, it's Caesar, uh the French uh, archaeologist and 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 you add a, the f word to that because uh, apparently that was true. um what's interesting about this bust of Caesar you you suggest is that it's one of the f- the few busts made by the Romans about Rome itself did did how did the Romans see themselves and why were they so? interested in busts in the representation of their heads
1: well I, I think that's extremely interesting because we have sort of in the 21st century we take busts for granted you know you go to a museum and you see people with their heads cut off basically and their their severed heads are, are, are laid out in front too of you. many heads we 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 we're we're bored with heads or we have too many heads we take them for granted and you know in a way and i confess this in the book you know i most of us and that includes me we go into a museum or a gallery and we see all these particularly roman heads and we walk quickly by right and i think that you know i do that we think you know a bit dull this is a bit kind of ordinary you know old dead white men. Um, What I'm trying to do is to say, look, have another look at them because they're more interesting than you think. And they also tell us a bit more about ourselves and about what we want from an image of power and how we look back into the past. I mean, it is absolutely striking that every generation for the last 500 600 years has wanted to find an image of julius caesar and you know we still have an image of julius caesar in our heads from from cheap movies or from um, cartoon books and there is it's it's absolutely hardwired into the way we think about power but of course we don't actually know which of the ancient images said to be a caesar really are. And that wonderful head from the Rhone, which um, is, you know, very politely translated, you know, got it, Caesar. Um, and I put the F word in, which is what the French said. You know, That's the latest candidate that everybody enthuses about. But whether he really is Caesar, there's no name. Um, he looks a bit like how we see Julius Caesar on coins. But any more than that? I don't know. It, get, it gets a lot of publicity uh, on websites. If you say, I found the head of Caesar,
0: Yeah, Mary, when I was reading the book, um, we had a a recent show uh, with Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, New Yorker writers, uh, New York Times, New Yorker writers, husband and wife team have written this excellent biography of James Baker, who was perhaps the the major power broker of late 20th century Washington, D.C., and looking at the picture of Baker there's Something very Roman about it, and maybe that's my problem rather than Baker's problem. Why do we associate these images of Rome with politics and male power? Is that our problem, or is it the problem of Rome?
1: I think we should, or maybe share. it's not
0: a problem at all.
1: I think it's a bit of a problem, and you know, and I do try very hard um, to find some images of, of women and by women, um, but uh, it, there is a sense in which the, this array of images that even if we can't identify the individual emperor, we sort of, we we know what's being talked about here. It is it is a kind of, it's a, a ready-made, oven-ready image of what a powerful man looks like. And, uh, you know, I think it was almost that for most people in the Roman Empire, you know, that the, Julius Caesar was, in a sense, the first emperor. He really revolutionized how people saw um, uh, men of men of power, um, and that continued for hundreds of years. And in a way, it's continued for 2,000 years. And I think that if you look back at them, as so I say, you find them rather more interesting than you think. You find also that some of them Challenge the power that the guys have. They don't always just celebrate it, but the the toga, the laurel wreath, or now just the 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 aspect, the you know the the stance of the man of power, it was determined in the Roman world two thousand years ago. What about the Renaissance, Mary? Um,
0: you you write a lot about the. 11 Caesars painted by Titian uh, in the 16th century, of course, based on uh, the 12 Caesars book by uh, Suetonius. Um, Did the Renaissance, as we think of now, reinvent Rome? Did they get it right? Are we thinking about Rome in the same way as as Titian did and, and, and other 16th century Renaissance figures?
1: they they reinvented it and we're the we in some ways are the heirs to their reinvention you can't get rid of um what what the renaissance did to to show us how the ancient world was like they did it in subtly different ways however and i think often they had more although we sometimes don't spot it they had more of a sense of fun about it they were more ironic about Romans than we give them credit for. They knew, you know, know, they they really do home in on the first 12 Caesars whose biographies were written by Suetonius in the second century AD. Well, you know, veritable ancient biographies. Um, They also know that most of these guys were utter bastards um, and you know, they're, they're images of power, but they're images of corruption as well as power. And 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 to be fair, or to be honest,
0: about sixteenth-century Florence, uh, the politicians <sighs> of that day were equally, yeah, yeah. yes, violent you know, and unpleasant. So I mean, there's nothing
1: yeah and but it's i think it's not as easy to say oh look they just wanted um to see themselves in in the kind of under the under the star of the roman emperors i think partly what they were doing is they were being a bit more kind of subtle than we give them credit for and they were saying look i mean they they weren't saying let's just parade and celebrate power let's ask what power is and let's ask what happens when it goes wrong. And of the first 12 emperors who, you know, form the kind of backbone of uh, representations of them from the 15th century onwards, there's only one who was not actually rumored to have come to a nasty end. You know, so these, these don't represent a comfortable image of power. I mean, we, in our boredom with them, um, we tend to make them rather comfortable, rather bland. Oh, you know, and we're not very bothered whether we see a Titus or a Caligula. Who the hell cares? You know, um, what I'm trying to do in the book is really kind of dig a bit deeper and so that people knew that these guys were dreadful, um, and and they're partly trying to work out what it is to be a good ruler, how a ruler should look. And and they're using bad examples as well as good.
0: I love that phrase, uh, Mary, how a ruler should look. The book, <laughs> of course, is called uh, Twelve yeah. Caesars. But in a way, you're trying to get us to think beyond or before or away from Caesar. You are um, you're avoiding Caesar in many ways. Um, you. you you have a and of course you are very mm-hmm. ironic uh, perhaps bringing some levity to this stuff which as you suggested earlier we, we take a little too seriously uh, you, you have this joke in in the book about um, somebody I've never heard of uh, mm-hmm. uh Elagabalos of uh, Heligabalus, And and I apologize for the the terrible pronunciation. An interesting head. What's interesting about this guy? How does he allow us to escape Caesar?
1: Well, uh, yeah, a lot of people have heard of bad emperors. You know, we've heard of Nero and Caligula. We've seen the movies. Uh, If you really want to go to an emperor that is as bad as you can possibly imagine, uh, you go to this guy, Elagabalus, and happily no one has heard of him. And, you know, I'm afraid when journalists ring me up and they ask, you know, what emperor should I compare ex politician to? I always say, try Elagabalus, because that always sends them yeah, And i got to
0: pronounce it right. Elagabalus. You pronounce it so perfect. beautifully. You're
1: doing it. You're doing it really well. And what he does is he he, in a sense, magnifies imperial faults, you know, beyond what you can imagine. And the, the picture that you just had on the screen, screen, um, which was Elagabalus's dinner party with a load of rose petals on it, um, that's a, a, a maybe a, a fictional event, but you know it's f- fake news, probably. Right,
0: it's, uh, it's a it's a late nineteenth-century uh, painting by Sir Lawrence Alma Tadema. Again, I didn't know about it, but you refer to it
1: in the book. Yeah, that, that's right. And he paints uh, paints a, an illustration of um, a, a story that is in a, an ancient biography of Alexander. because he invites all his mates to dinner? Um, and then he is so generous, he lets rose petals tumble from the ceiling. You know, what could be more generous than that, except uh, they smother the guests and the guests all die. And, you know, you, you think, oh, curious story. You know, how cute, you know, curious story. Actually, it's telling you something about imperial power. It's telling you something about you know what happens to you when an emperor is really, really generous, <laughs> right? Well, it kills you, right? You're dead. And uh, Elagabalus, you know, totally upturns everything you might think about the good ruler. I mean, from very simple things that he was um, the inventor in the west at least of the whoopee cushion. He had people to dinner and put them on cushions and pulled the plug out so they kind of collapsed. Um, but he uh, he upturns nature You know, he will only eat fish inland, not by the sea. He will only have ice uh, in the summer. (laughs) Really difficult in Rome to have ice in the summer. And so you see that in the middle of all this, in the imagination of the Romans, the emperor is not just a guy who is a better or worse ruler who you might or might not want to be on the throne. The emperor is somebody who upturns the very natural order of things. And they have always been reimagined precisely in those terms you know the emperor is a dangerous person because he tries to control everything and that means you and me and nature itself and uh, I explore some of the some of the the wilder examples of that in the book
0: yeah and you you're you're doing your own turning upside down you of course are very well known for your bestseller women in power a manifesto you're uh, un- unabashed, unashamed feminist, and 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 there's an element of this in the book. Uh, you talk about um, again a a sculptress who who I'd never heard of, Mary Edmonia Lewis, yeah. as an African American sculptress who who represents Rome and Roman heads both very conventionally and very subversively. What is yes. it about Lewis that's so interesting, Mary? Well-
1: For me, Lewis was absolutely fascinating because, you know, to be honest, I was in part looking for some women who had tried to take on Roman imperial power. Most of the artists are men. And the most interesting one I came across was Edmonia Lewis. She's the first professional African-American sculptor, uh, uh, female sculptor Uh, there is. She experienced terrible racism in the the States and she set up a, a studio in in Rome, where, where she was um, quite successful, but she brings a, a real edge to some of these images. Um, one of her most famous statues is a statue of the dying Cleopatra, um, who, okay, isn't an you know, isn't an emperor or an empress, but was the mistress of um, Julius Caesar for a time. And this was absolutely revolutionary because many artists before had depicted the death of Cleopatra, but they'd always sort of depicted the moment before this. It was, you know, Cleopatra kills herself with a snake bite and you see her in the painting or the sculpture uh, holding up the asp that's going to kill her. But it's always that moment in advance. Lewis is the first person, as far as I know, to show you the dyingness, the very dyingness of Cleopatra. And it, it was controversial at the time. It then got lost. It, for, for many decades, it was in Chicago being used as a, a, a to mark the grave of a, of a racehorse, actually, until it was found again and put in the Smithsonian. But... Uh, Lewis also makes uh, makes her money, I suspect, um, by by turning out tourist art. Yeah, um,
0: by uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, the the one that you mention is her uh, young Octavian.
1: Yes, young Octavian, and you know this is the name by which the Emperor Augustus, the, the the next in line after Julius Caesar, is known. And this is a copy of a sculpture in the Vatican. You um, still go and see it there today, and you know, to my taste and to most people's taste, it's very bland. This sculpture, you know, it is you know, and and people have always said, mm, you know, she just she turns this stuff out to make her daily bread, really. I, I suddenly realised when I was looking at Lewis that this little sculpture of Octavian was being sculpted in her studio at exactly the same moment as Cleopatra was Cleopatra's was much bigger but they were being done at the same time and then you say to yourself well is there a kind of is there an importance in that and I think yes there is because uh the question is who made Cleopatra kill herself you know why did Cleopatra uh get the asp and um and kill herself well she was driven to it by precisely the young Octavian And so actually you have, in a way, the killer and the victim being made together and you have a a very, I think, very romanticised image of Cleopatra, but a very shocking one. And then you have this little boy, you know, who's still almost a teenager, butter wouldn't melt in his mouth, Um, and yet he's a villain, you know. So that bland, uh, uh, utterly kind of apparently naive boy that you see there. That's the face of Roman power, and that's the face of the man who's going to make sure that Cleopatra ends up dead. So, you know, there's a nice and really interesting and original vision there, I think, that you find um, with Edmonia Lewis, extraordinary sculptor.
0: Uh, Mary, some people suggest we're returning to Rome. We're certainly returning to the strong man, uh, I don't know if you're mm-hmm. familiar with this book. Ruth ben ghiats written a wonderful book called yeah. Strong Men. She was on the show recently tracing the Trumps and the Berlusconis and the Erzegans mm-hmm. and the Putins back to Mussolini and Italian fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has this wonderful quote in the book. One thing was certain, once Mussolini entered your life and your vagina, you <laughs> were never free of him again. Right, um, no. What did the fascists do, particularly Mussolini obviously given his obsession with Rome and antiquity, what did the the fascists do in terms of resurrecting images of power from antiquity?
1: Mm. Mussolini very much saw himself in the model of both Julius Caesar and Augustus and he he plastered Rome with with images of of those emperors in particular And, and uh, he used them really to legitimate his his own position but also his sense that he could recreate an Italian empire that um that modeled itself on the Roman Empire. Um I, I think that that for us it 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 very much kind of fixed um Roman imperial power and the images of Roman emperors into that sort of hardline fascist um tradition. Uh, and that certainly is one aspect of how Roman emperors were remembered, were imaged, and have continued to be. I think it's tended to blind us a bit to the more subversive sides of Roman emperors, to the funny sides of Roman emperors, and to artists who kind of took pot shots at um, you know, the sheer kind of casual nastiness of them, you know, some of the some of the most memorable images from the Renaissance uh, of of Domitian, you know, a not terribly well known emperor, but uh who was assassinated in '96. Um, well, what was Domitian's hobby supposed to be? Well, it was supposed to be going and locking himself up in his room, getting his pen out, and torturing flies. <laughs> you know, now. Um, Renaissance artists, you know, including uh, you know uh, some great sketches, um, uh, by, by Rubens, um, really enjoyed thinking about the sadism and the absurdity of that, and we have tended a bit, I think. Not perhaps in movies where we've kept it, but in terms especially of especially
0: Carry On movies, right?
1: Carry On. I mean, I was introduced to Roman emperors by Carry On movies. Well, we all were growing up in England, I think. That, that's right. You know, there's this wonderful, um, you know, wonderful scene where um, uh, Kenneth Williams, a famous British comic, who's uh, pretending to be acting Julius Caesar, uh, gets up and says, and it's uh, it's a, a phrase every British child knows: "Infamy, infamy." They've all got it in for me, right? <laughs> that's perfect. Um, but that's got rather marginalized to to film uh, and to, to kind of very popular culture.
0: Yeah, it's that reverence. Uh, Mary, a couple more questions. I know you've got to run. As you say, we're very bored with the heads, they're, they're rather conservatives. And I'm, I'm curious are we missing much with Rome, with this preoccupation with their art, forgetting about their innovation? Um, Next week, I have—I'm uh, sure you know him. Um, oh, Armand,
1: yes. Yeah, Armand
0: on the show. He's ed- He has an introduction to Aristotle's book on innovation, right. and then yes. I've also had Kyle Harper on the show, right. connecting right. Right. Rome right. and the decline and 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 the environmental crisis of today with Rome.
1: Um, of course, I think we are missing something if all we look at is the heads. I mean, what I want people to do is take another look at the heads when they've read my book and think, right, okay, so they're not boring. You know, there really is something here.
0: Or conservative. I mean,
1: these were the innovators
0: of antiquity. I mean, this is why we remember them, right?
1: That's right. You know, um, the Emperor Augustus redefined what it was to be a political leader and gave his name to the month of August. You know, we're still living under their stars in a way. July, Julius Caesar, August Augustus. And, you know, I think you can look at them very differently. And I think in the Renaissance, they were looked at differently. They were innovators as well as being nasty. But I think what where um, the study of Rome has changed, you know, almost you know, a bit before my lifetime, but partly my lifetime, is by the kind of stuff that Kyle Harper's doing. You know, we're looking at big environmental questions. We're looking uh, and learning how to look for what the ordinary people did. Um, uh, how the ordinary people interacted with, you know, emperors. I mean, one of the, the strangest things I found in the course of working for the book was um found some lovely ancient uh, cookie molds um, which actually were for making little cookies but they stamped the head of the emperor on the cookie. So, you know, you have to imagine, you know, the ordinary people of the Roman Empire, you know, taking up the cookies and biting into them and enjoying, you know, eating the emperor like we still eat um, chocolate coins with heads of Augustus. You know, everybody's always had a good time eating emperors. And so we want to look at those people, too.
0: Mary, how should people read this book? It's it's quite specialised. Should they read it before or after your best-selling SPQR, which is a, a general history of Rome?
1: I, I think it doesn't matter very much. I think probably, um, yeah. You know, I suppose I'd say read SPQR first and then this. But you can you can come into this. And I think what what I'm really wanting out of this book is that it changes the way you see things that you've taken for granted. So I do a basic intro, which comes from SPQR really, but I want people to be able to go to museums and art museums again and say, um, oh, look, look, I I now recognise that guy. I now see why that's important. And so, you know, I'm hoping that things that we've all walked past, me included, will now perhaps stop and say, Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, you're oh. definitely going to, uh, yeah, that's, I'm not going to walk
0: past those heads now next time I'm in my museum. Finally, okay. Mary, uh, you've written so many wonderful books. Your autobiography, It's a Don's Life, comes at least with the image on the front with the head of a Roman. How, how do you want
1: your head to be remembered? Do you want <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, and I think there's, you know, that I do cover in the book some, you know, very, very demure heads of Roman empresses. But I think that I want to be remembered saying, you know, cheers, everybody. Uh, she lived a good life.
0: <laughs> well, you certainly have lived a good life. I'm sure you've got many more years uh, to
1: live. Uh, Mary
0: Beard, real honor to have you on the show. Your new book, Thank 12 you. Caesars, Thanks. is a classic Beardian piece, entertaining, erudite, lots of fun. Keep well, Mary, and we'll talk again about Rome, images, and power. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.